Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Maybe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks, brother. Yeah, that was awesome. That was a great introduction. You should be, could you be like my hype man before like every talk? I was like, it got me choked up a little bit. That was great, man. So, uh, as Father said, uh, our connection goes back to Damascus. The first time uh, I met Father Sizemore here was, uh, oh, man, I think I was, I was chaplain for one of the weeks of camp here. And uh, you just came up for, you have, might have had kids here, I'm not sure, but... Um, the guy rolls up with flip-flops on. I was going to wear my flip-flops, but I forgot my flip-flops. I was like, I was going to be like you, but I forgot my flip-flops. But you came up for Mass, and we were processing in for Mass, and uh, I don't know if you remember this, but you were coming up the steps, and you tripped, your flip-flop hit the step, and he smashed his face on the steps, okay? I didn't see it happen, but like we get up there, we sit down, start Mass, I'm doing the opening prayer, we sit down, I look over, and there's just blood just like pouring out of your face. I'm like... What is, what is happening? How did the, when, when did that happen, right? Because I wasn't in the back of the church when we started. Anyway, so I'm so honored to be with you. I'm so honored to do this with, for you and for your staff. Like, when I hear parish staff, this is just not what I think, y'all. Like, this is there's something amazing and special at St. Francis de Sales. And, uh, you know, I'm just honored to be with you. Honored to be part of your mission in some capacity. So, yeah, really, 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 really uh, honored and excited. So, all right, let's talk about this quote that's on your t-shirt, this, thir- this theme for your year. From the book of Esther, we were born for such a time as this. I realized before uh, I started this presentation that I didn't have a title slide to my little slide deck. So this is a picture I just took two weeks ago uh, in the hills of England. I was there for a two-week pilgrimage. Uh, at Oxford and uh, walking through the English countryside. This was like a 10-mile hike that we did one day and come through this field and there's just like three sheep. Just, it has nothing to do with the talk. It's just a pretty picture. Uh, so it's like I just need something in the background. Born for such a time as this from the book of Esther. Look, I feel like nobody knew this quote before two years ago. At least I didn't hear it. Nobody, I didn't hear anybody talking about this quote from the book of Esther before two years ago. I don't know if you know, but things were not uh, quite like they are two years ago. Uh, things have changed a lot in the last two years. We had a pandemic, uh, and that sucked. And um, <laughs> I think, like, yeah, global pandemic followed by a crazy summer of unrest and racial division and political insanity, craziness in the church, outside of the church, just feeling like the car, the train is just like rumbling off the tracks, right? Every day it felt like, it feels like in some ways, every day things just get more and more crazy. Like, when, like are, are we ever going to hit the bottom of the, the crazy barrel, right? Is that just me or does anybody else feel like, like, okay, my man, okay, good, all right, my people, you're my people, all right. So, um, yeah, so it felt like, like within like the last two years, people started, like they found this quote from the book of Esther to be like, okay, look, we got this. We were born for such a time as this, right? So you started seeing it show up on Instagram, you see it on Etsy shops, girls start doing the fancy hand lettering, born for such a time as this, right? 
it's all in the Catholic Etsy world, right? So, so there, there, you, ladies know, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Is it a real scripture quote if it's not hand-lettered? I don't know. All right, so, <laughs> so I want to talk... I want to talk about this quote. I want to talk about this book from the Old Testament. I really, I mean, by raise of hand, who's ever read the book of Esther start to finish? Okay, a few of us. Okay, you were former Protestants, I take it? I, okay, I'm just kidding. All right, um, cool. So what I want to do is I want to familiarize us with this book. I'm going to do a sort of sweeping little overview, uh, kind of pull out some general themes, and then try and, try and put a bow on it, uh, uh, a fun bow. It, it, it's going to look like we're taking a hard left turn, but stay with me. Um, we're going to try and put a bow on it to see what this, uh, what this story has to do with us uh, year 2022 and you as a parish staff, you know, in Newark, Ohio. So, all right, if I could summarize this whole book, I would say it's a story about God's wild providence, his provision, and the parts that we play in the theodrama. His providence, his provision, and the parts that we play. You gotta have alliteration. Providence, provision, parts, right? Providence, provision, parts that we play in the theodrama. One of my favorite theologians is a guy named Hans Urs von Balthasar. And kindergarten was very hard for him with a name like that. But um, he, ha- he makes this distinction between what he calls the theodrama and the ego drama, right? The theodrama is like... The script, the story as being told by God, right? From God's perspective, the, the parts that we're playing, that the much grander story that's, that, that, we're, that we're part of, right? Versus the ego drama, my project, my plans, what I'm doing. Spoiler alert, the ego drama sucks compared to the theodrama, right? So the more that we can play theodrama, the more rich and full and awesome our lives are. All right, so the, let me, we're going to dive into the story here. So the book of Esther, the drama of the story, the drama of the book of Esther, it commences when you, this Persian king, his name is King Ahasuerus. It's really his name, I swear. Okay, so King Ahasuerus, it's also King Xerxes. So this Persian king, Ahasuerus, he throws this banquet to impress the people of his kingdom. So he's throwing this banquet, he summons In the midst of this banquet, in the midst of the revelry, the drinking, he summons one of his wives, Queen Vashti, to his presence. Well, Queen Vashti is not about to be summoned at the snap of the king's finger, and she does not show up when she's summoned, which is a huge no-no in the ancient world. King Ahasuerus is, is, is angry. He's put off. He calls this emergency crisis meeting with his cabinet to determine what's going to be done about Queen Vashti. Well, there's this guy in the cabinet. His name is Mamukin. Again, if anybody's looking for a baby boy name, I think there's some really good ones in the book of Esther. <laughs> Not. Oh, hey oh. Mamukin. Okay, there you go. Mamukin is this, he's this obviously henpecked husband who's, he suggests the most extreme measures be taken to deal with Queen Vashi. He says she should be put away, set her aside, basically fire her from being a wife, basically put her away. All right. Why does he do this? Well, because he doesn't want any of the other wives of the kingdom to get all, you know, I'm not showing up, right? When I'm summoned, right? So we're going to put her in her place, all right? So that's what happens. So the king accepts this suggestion and makes the decree to set aside Queen Vashti. Well, what you have now is a situation where the king is down and out a wife. So what they got to do? He needs a new wife. So they... The search begins. The search goes out to find some young, beautiful virgins. It's kind of like America's Got Talent harem edition, okay? Um, so 
the decree goes out. We're looking for young, beautiful virgins for the king. Here's where the story actually really commences. We got this guy named Mordecai. His name means little guy, basically. So he's a short guy. We got Mordecai, right? So Mordecai, the short guy, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's one of the Jews who, uh, during the Babylonian exile, you know, they're taken away from Jerusalem. They're spread throughout the diaspora, the surrounding region. And he has just never come back home. So he's a Jewish Benjaminite, a Jewish man who settles into Persia. And he was never going to return home. He had adopted his uncle's daughter, a.k.a. his cousin, right? That's how that works, his uncle's daughter. He adopted his uncle's daughter, Esther, and he raised her as her own. Now, Esther is this beautiful, beautiful young woman. And Mordecai enters Esther in this beauty contest, right? America's Got Talent, harem edition. He enters her into this beauty contest, and Esther immediately captivates all the people in charge of it. Very significant to this story is that Esther's Jewish lineage, her Jewish heritage, she is kept very secret. She's not told anybody this. So she enters into the pagan, uh, the pagan world as a sort of secret Jewish, um, I don't know, spy, I guess, if you will, right? So the king sees Esther, and he is enamored with her. He thinks that she's stunning and gorgeous, and all the other women are, you know, eights compared to her ten. So she's amazing. So he chooses her. He makes her his queen. As a reward for all of Mordecai's hard work, Mordecai is given a position of authority in the kingdom. He becomes a judge. And as a judge, he has to live in a particular part of the city. He lives by the entrance to the city. Again, providential because Mordecai, in his new position where he's living, he overhears this conspiracy between these two people. They're plotting to kill the king. Mordecai overhears it. He tells Esther. Esther tells the king. And those two guys get... Right? They get taken care of. They get killed. That's what means for future reference. All right? <laughs> That'll come back. All right? Now, there is a man in the kingdom who has been raised to a position of prominence by the king. His name is Haman. Okay? Again, another good boy name. Haman, who is promoted by the king to this position. Essentially, he's the prime minister of the kingdom. He is, uh, he is an Agagite. Okay? So... I know, weird names in the Old Testament. So he's an Agagite. If you remember, Saul was supposed to annihilate the, um, the, the Agagites. He was supposed to kill this whole pagan people. But Saul doesn't do it. He leaves some to live, which was the ultimate thing that the Lord was like, oh, Saul, you could have been great. And he sets Saul aside that creates space for David to come to power. So this Agagite named Haman, who's anti-Jewish, hates the Jews. He's already got a bone to pick with Mordecai. So Haman puts out this decree. He's asking everyone now in the official cabinet of the kingdom, you will bow down before me. Well, this is a problem for Mordecai the Jew because as a Jew, I don't know if you heard of the Ten Commandments, they're pretty important. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down before them is literally the translation. So Mordecai's like, can't do it, Haman. Can't do it. I'm a Jew. He doesn't tell him that, but he just says, I can't bow down before you. This is the reason. Haman is furious and he seeks the king's permission not only to kill Mordecai, he seeks the king's permission to kill all the Jews. This is a guy who really needed to talk to somebody, okay? He could have used a school counselor or something, right? He went from zero to genocide, like nothing, right? This is a theme also throughout the scriptures. It's pretty significant. When you think about the history of the Jewish people, how often it's happened where insane hatred bubbles up 
where someone wants to wipe out all of them, right? Think about Pharaoh in the Old Testament, right? Moses escapes. Think about Haman, right? This is a theme. Think about Hitler. It's not thinking about Hitler too much. We're on retreat. But <laughs> this is a theme. This is a theme. All right, so what happens? What happens? Haman approaches the king, and the king kind of, again, in a sort of like, indifferentism agrees to Haman's decree. We're going to kill all the Jews. So a decree is written up. It's sent to all parts of the kingdom that on the 13th day of Adar, which is essentially March, 13th day of this month, all of the Jews are to be slaughtered in their beds. Men, women, and children, babies of the breast, everyone's getting taken out. Shocking, 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 shocking. Mordecai is mortified. Pun intended. Mordecai is mortified. At this, and he approaches Esther saying, You have to do something about this. You have to do something about this to intercede for the people. He's asking her to go before the king to change his mind. But here's the problem Queen Esther hasn't been summoned to the king's presence in over a month. And you can't just appear before the king in the ancient world. It's a big rule in the ancient world. You can't just go without being summoned. If you do, that's so presumptuous, you are put to death. So Esther's like, what can I do? What can I do? And this is where Mordecai, this is where we hear the famous line. This is how it actually appears in the book of Esther, chapter four, verse 14. We hear Mordecai say to Esther, maybe you were made queen for just such a time as this. That's what he says to her. So Esther begins to pray. And she eventually steps confidently into the king's presence. And she's so calm. What the king does is he extends his scepter to her. It's a sign of saying, you're not going to, okay? That means die. Remember? Who is me? Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to kill you. He extends his scepter saying, you may live. You can come forward. The king senses that there's a real crisis at hand. So he assures her, like, Esther, my queen, tell me. I will give you half my kingdom, whatever you want. She's reluctant to tell him. For a lot of reasons, but she says, I'm going to throw a banquet and I'm going to invite you and Haman, right, to this banquet and we'll talk then. So this is what happens next. Haman goes home. He's updating his wife. He's telling her all that's going on. Tells his servants, we're going to kill all the Jews. This is fantastic. I'm going to be moving to this position of prominence in the kingdom. And his servants say, let's just prepare for Mordecai's death. So we're going to build a gallows, right? Hang it. We're going to hang. He's going to be hung. They build a gallows 50 cubits high, which is 150 feet tall. A bit of overkill for a guy who's like five feet nothing, okay? They build a massive gallows to kill this guy. Later that night, the king, King Ahasuerus, he cannot sleep. Again, providence, God's providence, this restless night of the king. He can't sleep, and so what he does is he asks his servants to read a book to him. Who wants a bedtime story? He asked them to read a book to him. And so the book they pick is the most boring book you can imagine. It's the events of the kingdom. Basically like the minutes of the kingdom, right? It's a good way to be put to sleep. Just read the meeting minutes. All right, so he's being read the meeting, uh, the, the minutes of the kingdom. And they get to this event where he hears about this guy Mordecai who overheard a plot to assassinate him. And the king asks the question, did Mordecai ever receive a a reward for this? And they say, look at the notes. No, he did not. And the king says to himself, I need to reward him for this. I'm going to do that. 
So the next day, king invites Haman, his prime minister, into his presence and says, this is the situation. What would you do to honor a man who deserves the highest honors? Now, Haman, being so egotistical, thinks that the king is talking about him, right? So Haman's like, all right, well, listen, if I was you, I would basically make that guy king, you know? Like, I'd give him your throne, I'd give him your crown, give him one of those wives of yours. That's what I would do if I was you. And the king says, I'm going to honor him just as you said. I'm going to honor Mordecai, which you have to imagine now. Haman is thinking, what? The dude I'm trying to murder, right? So he freaks out. Now, at this point, that night, Haman and the king are summoned to the queen's banquet. So they're at the banquet. And what happens is Mordecai is honored by the king. Haman thinks again, this is really problematic. So they're there. And Esther reveals to the king all that's been going on. She reveals to the king, I'm actually a Jew. And there's this plot to kill my people from Haman. And the king is flabbergasted that all the trust he put into this prime minister, he thinks like, I've been totally mistaken about him. He says, I need some time to think about it. Haman pleads to the king for his life. Like, please, please understand me. And what he ends up doing is he falls asleep on the couch where Queen Esther is sitting. Now, not a great place to fall asleep. Okay, next to the king's wife. King comes back in. He sees Haman lying on the couch next to his wife. And what does he think? I don't think so, right? That's what he thinks. He thinks it's time for Haman to get a little, right? So Haman, Haman gets hung on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. Haman gets killed, right? What happens here at the end of the story is that the Jews escape certain death again. The king issues another decree, and they're all spared, all because Esther had the courage to step into the theodrama. Okay, that's the book of Esther in 10 minutes. That's pretty good, right? All right, so, book of Esther. You could read it in about a half hour, right? Awesome book, a lot of great drama. So here's the question. What the heck does that story have to do with y'all? Right. Father Sizemore's got some gallows out back in the <laughs> 150 feet high. <laughs> I see your report was late. I see. <laughs> if you wanted it earlier, <laughs> <laughs> all right, this is good. We'll workshop this later. I think we'll get some good stuff out. All right, so remember, like I said, this is a story about God's wild providence, his provision, and the parts that we play, the parts that we play. Here's where my mind goes when I think about, um, when I hear Mordecai's words to Queen Esther, when he says, perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. Perhaps you were born for such a time as this. This is where my mind initially goes to this guy. Who knows who this guy is? Thomas Aquinas. The old dumb ox. Okay, so Thomas Aquinas. That's what was, that was his nickname, right? I love that this picture actually makes him look a little thick, right? Because he was. He was a thick man. Stories go, stories say that they had to cut a circle out of the table for his belly to fit in the table. That's my kind of saying. Okay, so Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, one of the smartest men who probably have ever lived, Thomas Aquinas, reflecting on God and God's providence, he says this, that God's providence 
So his ordering of things, his providence extends even to particulars. What does that mean? That God's providence isn't just merely thematic. Like, um, Portugal, you're going to have a good year. Just go for it, right? It's not just thematic. It's not generalized. It extends into particulars. Thomas Aquinas says that God's mind knows every curve of every wave and the flight pattern of every insect. Just imagine that for a second. The mind of God knows the flight pattern of every insect, the flight pattern of every seed, every grain of pollen that's released in spring. God's mind, his providence extends even into particulars. He doesn't leave anything to chance. Now, if that's true, this is where the second place where my mind goes. If that's true about his providence extending to particulars, then it is most true. This is where we're about to take a hard left turn. It's most true here. Now, you're probably like, I wasn't expecting to see that on a screen. (laughs) Okay. Here's you. And everybody you know, right before you come to be. Look at you. Oh, almost you, right? Almost, right? This is every person, every person. This is where we have to start. If we're talking about you were born for such a time as this, then we really have to talk about you were conceived for such a time as this, okay? This is where things get wild. This is where things get wild, Because the staggering truth, the statistical fact, is that you and I should not be here. We shouldn't exist, statistically speaking. We shouldn't exist. 500 million, we're going to start with that number, 500 million-ish sperm released with one mission, to get to that one egg first. You got to feel bad for this guy. Right? Like... (laughs) So close. <laughs> so close. It's like, man, I was, I was almost right there. Uh, if any one of those 500 million other ones got there first, it's a different person, right? You won the race of 500 million, right? I don't run because I always remember this. Right? I don't need to do marathons. I don't need to do 5Ks. I am a winner. In the deepest sense. Okay? If any other one got there first, you are not here. You are not. Okay, so what we're talking about is one in 500 million. Okay. But that really isn't the reality. That's not really the full picture. Because throughout the course of a man's lifetime, he produces somewhere in the ballpark of 525 billion, that's with a B, sperm cells. Again, ish, give or take. Each with their own unique genetic makeup, each with their own unique genetic structure. Each, if that one met the egg and not that one, it's a different person. Different eye color, different hair color, different shape of the fingerprints, different number of eyelashes, different number of taste buds. Like, it's different so not one 500 million, one in 525 billion. Uh, right? Like, but 
Wait, it's even crazier. Because you have to multiply that by the odds of your dad existing and the odds of your mom existing and then your grandparents and your great-grandparents and it's all one in 525 billion and back and back and back and back. So it starts looking like something like this where there are so many zeros in this percentage, in this decimal, in this number. Statisticians, when you're dealing with numbers, something that's so infinitesimally small like this, statistically, they call this effective zero. Meaning that there is effectively no reason why you are here. Because if you're great, 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 great grandfather missed when he threw the spear at the saber-toothed tiger, you ain't here. That's where we have to start. That's where we have to start. Because we are here. You, you are here. Y'all, all of us are here. Against the craziest of odds, you are here. We shouldn't exist, but we are, right? To the atheistic, materialistic universe, to that worldview, it's all chance and random. Look, I don't have enough faith to believe that, that I'm here by some random chance. The only way to explain our being here is that we were willed into being, longed for, desired, that you and I are part of God's dream for the world. That you were born, as your shirt says, you were conceived for such a time as this. Like the same God, okay? The same God who said that the universe needs one of these. Everyone know this? This is Jupiter, right? The same God who says we need Jupiter and a beautiful moon and all of the beauty of creation. The same God who looked out at the universe and said, it is not enough without sunrises. It's not enough without dew drops on rose petals. The same God who said the universe needs this and this, and this, and this, and this. The same God who said all of creation needs that also needs one of these. <laughs> We're not sure. (laughs) Pretty great. Pope Benedict, Pope Benedict said this, that each of us is the result of a thought of God. This would be great to grind, grind into the minds of your students. Each of us is the result of a thought of God. Each of us is willed. Each of us is loved. Each of us is necessary. That begs the question, necessary for what? For what? To play our part in the drama. There's never been a you. And there's never going to be another you. And furthermore, there's never been an us. And there's never going to be another us. Right? The... The unique instrumentality of you is unrepeatable, unique, and irreplaceable. There is not another one of you, which means that your part in the choir of creation cannot be sung by any other person. 
No angel can sing the yes that you are meant to sing. No other saint can sing the yes that you are meant to sing. And if you don't say it, if you don't sing it, if your life is not the declaration of what God made you to be, all of heaven is poorer for that. It's like there's a color missing from the tapestry. Utterly unique. Only you can play the part. And most importantly, in terms of our necessity, we are necessary for the people that we happen to be sharing life with. That we happen to be on the same plot of earth with. All right, just a few more crazy numbers for you, and I promise, no no more about sperm, I promise. Okay, so deep breaths. According to the latest estimates from Google, there's roughly 7.753 billion people alive today. And again, according to Google, there have been 107 billion people in all of human history. How Google knows that, I don't know. That's above my pay grade. God's providence is not generalized. It extends into particulars, which means, as Father was saying, God could have shot you into any point of the human story, but he didn't. There's a great line in the scripture where God talks about the, quiver, the arrows in the quiver of the Father are like, they're, they're a sign of his fruitfulness, they're a sign of his children, and he's a perfect, he's got perfect aim. He could have shot you into the Middle Ages or into the prairie where you're going across the Oregon Trail or into the early 1900s. But he didn't. You are here. He placed you into existence now, which means that the people sitting around you don't just happen to be sitting around you any more than you just happen to be sitting around them. Like, okay, if my talk like has a point, it's this. That you don't just happen to be on this staff. Like, no one's here as like, as a, as like a throwaway thought or as a, yeah, she'll do. It's not how this works. At least not from God's perspective, not from the theodrama. Like, the position you hold at St. Francis de Sales, it's not a mere coincidence. The people that you happen to be interacting with Oh, that's okay. I have no more slides. That's perfect, yeah. That was perfect timing. Yeah. It's like there's like providence or something. The people that you're working with, the people that you interact with, the people who come to the front desk, the, the parents, the, the, the roster of your classes, the parents you have to deal with and the emails you have to respond to and all of the crap. It's not an accident. It's not just happenstance. It is part of a drama. It is part of something so much bigger than you, right? It is willed by God and you have a role to play. You are not a placeholder. Like you, in all of your uniqueness, all of your you-ness, your particularity, like that's what God wanted. If you wanted somebody else, there would be somebody else. But there's not. It's you. Which means he wants you. Not because you're so great, but because it's you. He works with very humble things. As Father said, again, these are tough times that we're living in. Especially as a church. I'm not going to go through all of it. That's not the point of my talk. But Because no doubt you're well aware of it. But please let this sink in. That 
in this time of unprecedented evil and confusion and chaos and spiritual indifferentism, right? In this time when the church feels in many ways like it's crumbling in different places, like who has God called into and willed into existence? It wasn't and it isn't St. Dominic, St. Francis of Assisi, St. John Paul II, St. Clair, St. Ignatius of Loyola, St. John Vianney, not St. Francis de Sales. Like those saints are dead. They're gone. They were raised up for their times. You and I are the ones that he's raising up right now, which is an incredible compliment of what God must think of you and what he must think of me. For this time of insanity, this time of craziest, unprecedented evil, this time when like the church and the culture is moving into the first post-Christian era that we've ever had, like welcome to that chapter of history, saying, you know who this world needs? You. It was St. Maximilian Kolbe who said in a prophetic way, that the saints of this next era of the church are going to tower like cedars over the great saints of old. That's one of those things where I hear it, I'm like, I don't know what that means, but holy cow, I want that. Like, hey, St. Francis. (laughs) (laughs) You thought that was hard, you know? Oh, man. And who were the saints? Who were the saints? They're going to land with this. Who were the saints? They weren't the ones who tried really hard. Man, something I hear all the time in confession, people say, like, God, just give me this. I just ask God to give me the strength. God, give me the strength. You know what people are saying when they say that is like, God, give me the strength so I don't have to need you so much. Give me the strength so that I'm not so weak. Give me the strength so that I don't have to keep coming back here. God's never going to answer that prayer. Because the condition to get into heaven is not being strong, it's being weak and little. Like it's babies, it's the child who gets into heaven. It's not an option to become childlike if you want to be sanctified, if you want to fit through the eye of the needle. You want to fit through the eye of the needle, get small, get little. Unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And there's nothing more childlike than letting the Father look at you. As we get older, as we accumulate all of our baggage and junk and crap along the way, we get nervous when people gaze upon us. Like if I were to ask you right now, turn to your neighbor and play a staring contest. You could do it, no problem. I mean, it'd be you know goofy and whatever, but... But if I just shifted it and said, I just want you to stare into your neighbor's eyes for 20 seconds, you probably couldn't do it. We can't endure the glance of God that long, because, not because we don't like being looked at, but because to be seen is so vulnerable. Tonight in adoration, I just want to shift the mindset for you a little bit. That it's not, when we go to adoration, it is not so much about you looking at him. It's about letting him look at you. You are the adored. Let that sink in for a second. Like, you're the treasure bearer. Like, Jesus said the other day, 
the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in the field, which someone finds, sells all they have to go and get. Or your kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price, which someone sells all they have to obtain. He's not saying that like the kingdom of heaven is worth it to get. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is hunting for you. Like Jesus in the monstrance is gazing at you. He's gazing at you. He's, he's, looking, he's looking at you going, hey, treasure, I see you. And I bankrupted heaven to get you. You are the pearl of great price that I'm looking for. You are the treasure that I've been looking for. So like in adoration, just invite you to bring your heart more and more out into the open. And if it brings up insecurities, fears, like just keep bringing that to Jesus. The only bad prayer is when we stop talking to him. If you get distracted, talk to him about your distractions. Let's end in a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, we thank you for the example and witness of the heroes in the scriptures, especially Queen Esther, who stood before the king, who stepped into her role in the theodrama. Lord, I ask you to send forth your Holy Spirit in power and abundance upon these, my brothers and sisters, that you would stir up even more in their hearts a longing for just vulnerability and openness before you, to let you, Jesus, gaze upon them. And Mary, with all things, we place all of this into your immaculate womb, asking that all of it would be brought to fruition, which is from the Father, and if all that was not would be burned away. And we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.